I'm a big lover of portmanteaus. If you don't know what a portmanteau is, it's two words crammed together to make one new word. For example, brunch, or sitcom, or infomercial. But my favorite one is a fairly recent portmanteau, and it is the word voluntold. Have you heard this one? Obviously, it's volunteer and told put together, and it's when someone kind of comes along and volunteers on your behalf. And you might think, we already had a word for that. We would say, I was volunteered. No, you weren't. That's not voluntary. You were voluntold. It's a vital word, and I hope it shows up in the dictionary someday. And we see in this text today a group of people who are kind of voluntold that they're going to do something in order to further the, the mission of God. And they are voluntold that they are going to give an awful lot up. And they respond by saying, yes, we voluntarily accept what we've been voluntold. But before we get to that, I think we need to just look at all these names. One at a time, talk them through. If you look in your bulletin, I, I called this sermon the lay leader's nightmare. But imagine you're preaching through this book and you come upon 14 verses of just unpronounceable names. It is a preacher's nightmare in many ways as well. It's the kind of text that makes people say, why is this in the Bible? Is it there to, to make sure I'm really committed to reading it when I'm going through my yearly plan? And, and of course, those who are outside of the faith will point at this kind of passage and laugh at it like, this is what your holy book is, just all these weird, it's like Nathan and then Nathan and then L. Nathan and then L. Nathan, which makes me think, this is my brother L. Nathan and my other brother L. Nathan. <laughs> And yet, here's the thing, when the scriptures don't have enough detail, historically, skeptics will point and say, you see, it's nothing, it's just a bunch of fairy tales. When it has too much detail, historically, they laugh at it and mock it and parody it and say it's just irrelevant documents from the past. But even some Christians, and probably most Christians at some time, struggle with this kind of text. Why is this here? All the names? Did we need all the names or could we have had some of the names? Well, recognize that in addition to uh, giving some of the credentials of some of these people, for example, when we had Ezra's whole background, taking him all the way back to Aaron, we also just basically have this, this anchoring of sacred stories in secular history when this happens. It puts it in the place and time. In fact, I don't even like that term, secular history. There's no such thing as secular history, but it pins down these events of redemption history in world history, in a particular place and time. And I'm always thankful for when it does that. This happens in the first day of the first month of the seventh year of Artaxerxes. This is something that then makes us say, okay, we see when and where all of these things unfolded. When a group of people did something incredible, which was leaving a comfortable land, the only place they'd ever known. Remember, these are now fifth or sixth generation exiles in Persia. And they're doing fine there. And they're leaving that place to go to an ancestral land full of uncertainty and hostility and danger. And this is sort of backwards for how this story generally goes. Historically, when people flee, they're fleeing their ancestral land, which they love, which is a part of them, but it's become uninhabitable, and it's too dangerous. Like uh, German Jews fleeing uh, in the lead-up to World War II, or, or Syrians fleeing their homeland in the 2010s. And they leave the place they love to go somewhere that's more comfortable and safer that isn't home. 
Well, here they're leaving a place where they're perfectly comfortable and rather safe to go to a homeland that's a fairly desolate place full of danger and uncertainty. And like the return in chapter 2, the first wave of return in the book of Ezra, this one is framed as another exodus. And we see that happening in several ways. We have the, the kind of plundering of the Egyptians re rehashed as the Persians pay for everything for them to go back. We see that he starts with some sons of Aaron, the high priest, and then he gives us a descendant of, of David, the king, from whom the Messiah will come, and then he gives us details on 12 families, which kind of reminds us this whole thing is a continued renewal of the 12 tribes of Israel. But why is Ezra bringing another group anyway? The beginning of this book, Zerubbabel took 50,000 people and they went back and they started rebuilding the temple and re-inhabiting the land. After 80 years, why go back again? Ezra doesn't tell us outright. You have to kind of read between the lines. What's the pressing need? It's the law. It's the law. It's that they haven't been living by the law of God entirely. This isn't just about finding a better life for yourself and your children. Ezra is going to go back and teach them the word of God. He's going to make it so this is not just a cultural phenomenon of getting back to our roots, but a spiritual phenomenon of returning to our God. This is why the first thing we learn about Ezra was that he was a gifted scribe, that he had a passion for the word of God, that he knows it, he studies it, he does it, he teaches it. This is who he is at his core. Because now he's going to help them make the jump from simply being a resettled people, politically speaking, not unlike modern day political Israel under the right of return, where I can tell you things are about as, as secular as you can imagine. Instead, they will be a covenant people with far more in common than ancestry or a shared heritage. And so he, he puts out the call and people come and they're gathered at the river Ahava, which means the river of love. Sounds like a nice place, doesn't it? They're gathered there because it is a natural staging ground where they can camp, they can count people, they can catalog who and what they have, make sure that they're ready to go. And as they catalog these things, we get the whole catalog in the text, and we have two different lists here. The first one, the long one, verses 1 through 14, all of those names together, this is the immediate volunteers, the boldest volunteers. Like when you were in class as a kid and the teacher would ask a question and before they were quite done answering it, there were certain kids who would go, like try and get taller and maybe snap a little. Aaron, Valerie, you know what I'm talking about. And, and, and those are the ones who are immediately like, yes, yes, me, 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 I will go. I will absolutely go. I know it's a big thing that I'm undertaking, but I am ready to do it. In the tradition of Joshua who said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. These are people saying, as for me and my house, we will go back to our ancestral promised land. We will undertake a four-month journey. We will take the risk, undergo the, the danger and the expense in order to glorify God in the land he has given us. These folks were rewarded then by having their names written down in God's eternal word. That's pretty cool. Granted, it's in a spot that makes everybody reading it go, okay, here we go. But still, it's in the Bible. That must be one of the most significant marks of faithfulness one can get. But here's my question as we think about those who left and those who did not. Are those who did not return when the call went out, were they 
sinning by not returning? Not really asking. No, right? Not necessarily. Some of them undoubtedly wanted to go or thought they should go, but didn't because of idolatry of comfort or of wealth. But others stayed behind because of health reasons or, or other situations. They were needed there. Even the heroes of this text in the next book, Ezra and Nehemiah, they went most of their lives, or at least a large portion of them, not returning. And there's no indication that they had been sinning at that point. It's like with missionaries, right? You have a missionary come. We had a great missionary come a few months ago. And a little part of me just feels a little guilty, right? I should have done that, I guess. What he's doing sounds amazing and exciting and it's awesome. And, and then I go, wait a minute, no. We can't all go. Someone's got to stay stateside and minister to the people here. Also, if you know me at all, you know that I would crash and burn immediately if I tried to survive in a, a difficult situation or even another culture for a long period of time. People aren't built for it. In the same way, there's a community to be ministered to in Persia, and people, even amongst the, the priests and Levites who are teachers, they're needed to stay behind. Someone has to care for them, to teach them, and yet there was a call for bold volunteers, and they got more than a thousand answers to that call. This is going above and beyond their basic duty. This past week, I was able to help a woman who was in a really difficult situation, and I was able to help her uh, get from that difficult situation to get things right and make her life uh, easy and make it work again. I was able to do it with money that was not mine, that was donated to the church, and to do it while carrying out a job for which I am compensated. And yet she kept on saying, oh, you're so kind. Thank you so much. You're such a nice guy. And I'm like, okay, I appreciate how grateful you are, and that's a nice breath of fresh air, but it's not me. <laughs> I'm not going above and beyond here. The church has donated this money for just this kind of thing. The deacons handle this fun. I'm just doing my job. Contrast that with, with David. Everyone just reel and look at David. <laughs> who put in hours and hours and hours to help get a family who was stuck here in an RV that wasn't working back home. And I know other deacons helped with that and Alex helped him with it. But my goodness... Dealing with brown icicles coming from the bottom of a broke-down RV and continuing to just say, what can we do? How can we do it? That's above and beyond the call of duty. Apostle Paul often went above and beyond. In certain cities, certain settings, he would not accept gifts to support his ministry. Instead, he'd split his time between teaching and evangelizing on one hand and then making tents so that he and his cohort could support the ministry and be self-sufficient. Certainly, this is not an obligation on ministers or missionaries everywhere. In fact, in most cases, it won't work. But in that case, it did. And he went above and beyond. Why do we do this? Why do we go above and beyond? Why do some people immediately respond and respond so much? Is it because we have to go above and beyond in order to please God? Because we've got to not only show him we love him, but make up for some of our sins. No, no, of course not. We often think of God perhaps in these terms, but that's the flesh talking. This is not how God operates. It's not that, that he says 15 pieces of flair is the minimum, but you know you've got to wear 37 in order to please him. This is not our God. Our God says, I know you can't even reach this point, that the, the, the point of basic righteousness. That's why I pour my grace out on you. That's why I, I've sent my son, Jesus. No, we go above and beyond. We're motivated to do that because Jesus did. 
He came and died. No, do it. This is, listen, there's, there's overalls wearing Baptist churches and there's amen shouting Baptist churches. I see no overalls, so shout amen, absolutely. There, there is, there is a, a kind of push that we feel internally that says, I have to show my gratitude to this Jesus. I have to, I have to be like the woman who took all the nard in the, in the expensive perfume and broke it open and poured it on Jesus' feet and went way, way above and beyond just so I can say I love you and I appreciate you for creating me and redeeming me and sustaining me and, you know, all the little things you do. Everyone can't do this, though, in every way. This is something I really want to impress on you today. We all want to go over and above and show Jesus our love and devotion, but everyone can't go above and beyond in every way all the time. You weren't made for that. I, when I was in school, I remember there was such an emphasis on training leaders, leadership development, leaders, leaders, leaders. And I remember at one point thinking, who's going to follow all these leaders if everyone's a leader? We come out and say, we need people to teach Sunday school. And everyone goes, oh. I don't know if I can do it. I don't feel like I'm qualified to do it. I've read in the scriptures that teachers are held to a higher standard. And you know what? I wouldn't want all of you to teach Sunday school. First of all, because then no one would be taking Sunday school. There'd be like a whole bunch of classes and no one in them. And also, frankly, some of you would be terrible at it. And most of you who would be, no, you would be. Most of you who would be, no, you would be. Throughout my life, I have sat through a good number of classes and studies led by people who were not gifted for it, but guilted into it. And it is painful for all involved. There are people who don't understand the Bible. Then there are people who understand the Bible fine, but they're not gifted to communicate it in a way that's understandable, that can be applied to their life. And of course, there's always one guy who within like five minutes of starting a lesson takes some wild left turn. And he's like, yeah, you see this number and then the number of nations in the European Union in 2007 and NFTs are the mark of the beast. And it's like, okay, maybe you didn't need to take this job on. In our world today, it's important for us to acknowledge everyone's thing can't be your thing. Not everyone's passion can be my passion. Not everyone's cause our cause. And this is incredibly important given that we basically know about all the suffering going on on all of the earth in a way that, that humans never have. All the time, not just from the news, which used to be for an hour every day and is now for 24 hours every day, but also videos online and just 24-hour running updates on everything, always coming in. We're not made to shoulder all that. There's one man who could shoulder all of the pain and suffering and fear and sin and guilt and all the rest of all mankind. That's Jesus Christ. Thank God he went to the cross to bear our sins. Thank God he even now is shouldering our anxieties and our cares as he intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. He's able. We're not. Period. Sure, sometimes there's a tsunami in Asia or a hurricane in the Caribbean, and the whole world can kind of say, all right, let's, let's combine our efforts and we can make a difference. But that's the exception. Most of the time, if you try to care about everything, all the time, you will just get an ulcer and be dragged into a deep depression. 
We're not made to be omniscient and bear every burden. And the anomaly of modern technology and the speed of information in our time is creating a heavy, heavy weight on the shoulders of people, especially Christians who know that they ought to care about the suffering of others. And so they feel a greater burden and a greater burden, and every day it gets heavier. You know, sometimes I hear Christians say, you know, I have a burden for this thing. I, have a, I feel a burden for social justice. I, I have a burden for this or that. And that's good. I mean, be careful with that language. Scripture does talk about Jesus taking our heavy burden from us and giving us his yoke, which is easy and light. The psalmist calls us to cast our burdens on the Lord, and he will sustain us. And yet, in Galatians 6, Paul does instruct believers, bear one another's burdens. That's a very Christ-like impulse to have. But the reason it makes sense for someone to tell another believer, I have a burden for homeless young people, or I have a burden for refugees, or for the unborn, or for university students who have never heard the gospel, is because ostensibly God placed that burden on me and put me in that field. I don't get to drop that burden on you as well. A couple years ago, two women came here to deliver clothing for the clothing center from another church. And we were talking about the clothing center, and I get to brag about the clothing center even though I have nearly nothing to do with it. It's kind of a great deal. And I was talking about how the thousands and thousands of children who have been clothed and how it's such an amazing outreach. And they said, yeah, that's great, but what about the homeless? And I said, well, we, we do homeless angels. Our, our deacons have really been pushing that lately. And have you heard of homeless angels? I said, yeah, yeah, but that's just part of it. It's a small part of the problem. You've got to do what we do which is we go into the parks and we go there every day and we bring blankets and we bring food and we do all these things. And, and that's where the real ministry is. Are you doing that? Why aren't you doing that? And I confess I answered them kind of in the flesh because I was very annoyed. And I said, how on earth do you have the time and the energy and the space and the resources to do all that when you have this clothing center in your church and you're housing three other uh, congregations, refugee congregations? And they said, uh, I think you've confused us with someone else. We don't do any of that stuff. I said, no, we do, though. Not everyone does the same thing. There wouldn't be a need for all these churches if everyone did the same thing. The picture in the scriptures is of a body, different parts. In fact, there's even this kind of goofy, over-the-top thing Paul does where the eye says to the hand, you know, because you don't see, you're no good. The kidney is saying to the heart, you don't even remove toxins from the blood. What kind of heart are you? Everything is meant to work in the way that God designed it to work. And if you have a burden for something, thank God for it and ask him for the strength to bear it. But don't try and make your thing everyone's thing. And don't try to make everyone's thing your thing. In the scriptures, we see deacons distributing food and caring for widows and orphans and taking care of mercy ministries and, and the poor and the ill comforting and encouraging them. You have elders focusing on the ministry of the word and prayer. You have missionaries going off on long journeys to other lands to bring the gospel funded by those who stay back and work because without them, there would be no missionary. Everybody can't be everything. And yet, there are times when the exception proves the rule. There are times when a need arises, like in this text, where the question we ask should not be, is this need that has come up in my community, is this, is this discrepancy that's come to my attention, 
Is it my passion? Or is it something that, that to me sounds immediately gratifying and I gravitate toward it? But rather, because of the urgency of the need, the question should be, can I make a difference? Can I do, am I needed here in this body at this time? Is there an urgent need I can meet? Should I be saying, I don't especially want to take on that project or fill that role, and yet, not my will, but your will be done. That is also a very Christ-like impulse, insofar as I was just quoting Christ himself. Because when this particular need is so great, and the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, that's what we see happening in the second list. There's an audit when they've all gathered at the River of Love. Who's here and who's not? And you know who's not? Levites. And they need Levites. The Levites are not the priests. The priests are in the tribe of Levi, but they're their own thing. The Levites are all the other people descended from Levi in that tribe who don't go into the temple and offer the sacrifices and burn the incense. But they have incredibly important jobs. They lead the people in worship. They teach. They guard the temple. There's security for those who are worshiping, which is going to be important continually in, in the situation in Jerusalem now. And a lot of the mission they're on is contingent on having Levites, and they have zero, not one, showed up. Remember, this is what Artaxerxes had said in Ezra 7, 25. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river. All such as know the laws of your God and those who do not know them, you shall teach. Levites are essential to carrying this out. It's also essential to have Levites so that this is, again, a second or third exodus. It's modeling what God has done before and God will do again in delivering them. And not having them is a big problem, and the problem is lack of volunteers. Same problem, different century. I want you to recognize two things here. First of all, no individual Levite was obligated to return. There's not any one that God said, you should go back, and he said, no, I'm not doing it. But two... The fact that there are no Levites indicates either a spiritual unhealth at best and kind of a culture of sin and selfishness at worst. And this is in the context of the slow decrease. You know, think about the first time 50,000 people returned with Ezra. And you say, wow, that's a huge caravan. And it is. Four-month journey, 50,000 people. But compared to the three million who came out of Egypt, it's not. And that was a longer journey, 40 years. And then we go to this second uh, return under Ezra here, and it's not 50,000. It's 1,500 men, probably five or 6,000 people total. Still, that's small. 50,000 isn't even all that big when you consider that you are rebuilding a nation with a group of people less than half the population of Lansing. That's tough. 1,500 is all we've got now. It's getting slower. There's reluctance already. And those who seem to be most reluctant are those you would expect to be amongst the most passionate, the Levites. So in verses 16 to 18, the leaders gather some power brokers and some discerning men, including a couple Nathans and a couple Elnathans, guys who can be persuasive, and send them to a man named Edo, who is the leader in Kasifia, which is most likely a synagogue or synagogue training center. 
Remember, the synagogue movement began in Babylon in exile. And they deliver Ezra's pitch to the Levites there. We need Levites to return. Without Levites, this whole thing doesn't work. It's like when the, the preacher in a, in a goofy movie or on The Simpsons or something, he'll, he'll look at the offering and go, you know what, send it around again. We need, we need more. There's this second call. And this one is sort of half volunteer drive, half draft. Right? Someone's going to go. I'm going to volunteer somebody they're going to go. There's a need that must be met, and, and the idea is we're kind of at a standstill until we have buy-in from some Levites. People have to now stop and ask themselves, how can I play a part? People who didn't respond immediately the first time around have to say to themselves, okay, let me stop and ask it again. Is this a job I can do? Is this something God would have me do? And of course, just like with teaching Sunday school or whatever the need, not everyone can fill it, right? In fact, you, you have all people in there, Benjamites, you have Judahites, you have people from different tribes. They can't be the Levites. They just can't. And so not everyone can do everything. But they ask the right people, and they ask them with the right people, and the appeal works. We don't know exactly what these guys, these messengers said, but I'm sure it included a reminder. This is why you were born a Levite. This is what it means to be a Levite. This is your opportunity to fulfill your role as a Levite. When we look at Numbers 3, which, which Dave read for us earlier, this is your purpose. You're a wave offering before the Lord. Wave. Do it. And so it works. They bring back some Levites. How many? 38. That must have been disappointing. And those guys coming to the, the group already all camped out there and all ready to go at the river Ahava must have felt like less than exemplary Levites. This little band showing up a couple weeks after everyone was ready to go. And yet their names are included in the Bible as well. And this, I think, is an important truth you may want to write in the margin of your Bible. Reluctant volunteers are often used mightily of God. He doesn't say, oh yeah, and there were some Levites, but I'm not going to write them down because they had to have their arms twisted. No, the 11th hour workers in Jesus' parable get the same pay as those who came in the first hour. They, they were there when it mattered and they, they answered the call eventually. And to clarify, this is 38 Levites plus 220 Nethanim, which are our temple servants. So we've got 250 some people gathered together. And if you look at the timeline, it really is rather impressive. The journey begins for the main party of returning exiles on the first day of the first month. They camp at the river for three days. Realizing they have no Levites, they send their delegation to Edo. We don't know how long it took to get there and to get back. But once the Levites arrive, they then fast and pray, we'll see in verse 21, and then they set off on the 12th of the month. We don't know how long they traveled or how long they fasted, but at most... These 260 men took less than a week to hear the call, to decide that they were going to answer the call, to uproot their lives, pack everything they'll be taking with them, say goodbye to friends and family, likely forever, and join the caravan to undertake a four-month journey. They counted the cost, they sought God's face, and they committed themselves. They're the last to arrive, but they're welcomed as heroes, not labeled as latecomers or second-class pilgrims. And when we're told what prompted these men, Cherubiah and Hashabiah, 
It sounds like made-up Bible names. But when we're told what prompted these guys and their families to respond to the call, it's not guilt, it's not manipulation, it's not some false sense of conviction. No, it is the good hand of the Lord, given the glory for these reluctant volunteers who come at the 11th hour. This is so important to remember in the church, where often, especially in a small church, every drive for volunteers has that sort of draft in the middle, like someone's got to say yes or I'm going to make someone say yes. You get the person who has the, that, that, that eye to come up and make the announcement. If only we had the authority to draft nursery workers and second-hour helpers, although I was told this morning by Deborah that miraculously the second-hour helper sheet just filled right up. Probably people had looked at the text and didn't want to be convicted by the sermon, and that is good. <laughs> But when you consider the history of our church, how it started, it exists because a group of Christians wanted to reach children with the gospel. This should be a priority for us. It should never be hard to find people to go into the nursery or go up to second hour and help teach children about Jesus Christ. Frankly, I'm one of just a couple of people who actually has a watertight excuse, and I really want to do it. It's ironic. But, you know, people will get really discouraged and want to give up when they've made a call or a plea or two and no one responds. That we said three or four times from the pulpit, we need VBS volunteers or we need more deacons or we need more volunteers for homeless angels. Sometimes people need to be asked one-on-one. -on -one. Sometimes people need to be cajoled a little bit. Sometimes people need to be asked more than once, like we see here in Ezra chapter 8. There is a place in the kingdom for reluctant volunteers. Sometimes Jesus and the Spirit do the cajoling. Aside, if you are the one trying to get the volunteers, don't get ahead of yourself. There's only a handful of things Jesus ever commands us to pray for in the Bible. And one of those is, the harvest is plenty, the workers are few, so pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will provide workers for the harvest fields. Often I think we go right to like psyops, like how can I make people say yes to do this and skip the part where we pray and pray and pray. And I have found every time I'm reminded, oh yeah, we got to pray for this. That seems to smooth things out quite a bit. Sometimes people come out of the blue and come into our number and say, I have a passion for this thing that we need to do here. I am happy to undertake it. So don't get ahead of yourself. Keep on praying. But once you've prayed, where there is a need, remember there is a place for giftedness, yes, but there's also a place for communicating a need and for submission to God. Sadly, how this often goes, whether in the Old Testament or in the church today, is that the, the plea will go out and it will go out again, and then someone who's already stretched thin, someone who's already doing three or four things, they're a, they're a deacon, they're on two committees, they're volunteering multiple hours at the church, they take on even more. And everyone goes, well, I'll bless their heart. Wasn't that nice of them? The expectation in Casiphia might have been that those who are most involved in teaching and things there would be the ones to go. But they're needed there. Perhaps the best thing would be those who aren't doing much in Casiphia would go. As long as they know the word and are qualified. Those Levites in Persia, they don't have much going on. We'll go to Jerusalem and teach. Likewise, in a local church setting, in a community setting, those who are not already on all these different things and doing all these different things, those who perhaps are taking more than they're giving at the moment, might say to themselves, well, I'm not going above and beyond right now, and I don't want those people to get burned out, which happens. 
Those who are doing very little perhaps might say, I got to remember Jesus told us it's better to give than to receive. How might I give? How, it's more blessed to give than to receive. How might I be blessed in this situation? How can I be blessed by God? How can I be used by God? Blessed by giving. These Levites were kind of voluntold. We need you. You're the ones, you're the ones who said, fine, I'll accept it, I'll do it. On further consideration, yeah, fine, count me in. But then they did it, and that's the important thing. Remember Jesus' little teaching in Matthew 21. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. He went to the other son, and he said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. We got rid of the nominating committee many years ago because it was an arm-twisting mafia operation, and it was counterproductive, trying to squeeze all the blood out of every stone. A lot of people were, were badgered by the nominating committee, and I was always, I'm always on every committee, and so I was part of this problem. And they'd say, okay, sure, I guess I'll do it. I know we need people to... And we had like 48 positions back then that needed to be filled for the church to be running. But they didn't have room in their lives. They didn't have buy-in. They didn't last long. They went to a meeting or no meetings. And when I learned that people were taking note of the night of the meeting and unplugging their phones or putting them in airplane mode, I thought we got to pull the plug on this. There has to be some passion if someone is going to do something. And yet Jesus does tell us, go out and compel those of the highways and the byways. Bring them in. There's a place for compelling. Paul compels Philemon. This is how you must react to this situation because you are in Christ. And the very gospel itself and the Great Commission rest on calling people, compelling people with all reason and with all, with all zeal to turn from their sin and follow Jesus. To turn from one way and walk another. And sometimes even after we've received Christ and been born again, we need to be called back occasionally out of our laziness and selfishness, myself included, out of our mixed-up priorities and reminded that we are walking the narrow road. We're living a different kind of life now. Not to the glory of self, but to the glory of God and to the service of others. In our world today, the idea of duty is sort of passe. It's a boring person, stodgy person, who does things out of a sense of duty. No, 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 don't follow that obligation or duty. Just follow your passion. Follow your heart. What sparks joy for you, do that. Listen, a sense of duty is a biblical virtue. Absolutely. Jesus said, this is your job, right? The Great Commission. Go and, and make disciples. Go, you, my church, proclaim the good news. You, my followers, go teach people to obey all I have commanded. Teach them, care for them. I'm with you always to the end of the age, but it's on you to do these things. And so we call one another to do them. And it's true you can't use guilt to force people into doing things long term. It only works for a little while. Yes, people will dig deeper, give more money, sacrifice more time, endure more unpleasant things for a time, but that will wear off. A sense of duty, however, can endure. And I think instead of saying our passion must override our duty, fulfilling our obligations, doing what we're meant to do, what we're made to do, can begin to burn with a holy zeal. And those things can become our passion. Just as Levites were needed in that time, 
Now, there is a need in every church, in every setting, for people who will do the stuff that, that's not number one on their list. That's, that's a fact. And there's a sort of critical mass needed in churches. I think I've been here now in the last 17 years through maybe three or four kind of waveforms of us having a time of growth and we have more than enough people to do everything needed to keep the church growing, which meant we had people who were able to go and do the exciting stuff and the outreach and all the rest. And then there'll be a lot of deaths. I've done 200 plus funerals. There'll be economic downturn and everyone goes to some other phoenix and all the young people are gone and you go, okay, now we can barely keep all the cogs turning to keep the building standing and everything running, let alone reach out beyond the walls of the building, have the resources and time and effort and funds at the end of the day to do some kind of mission and ministry, that can be the death knell of a congregation unless the reluctant volunteers come in because they hear of the need. They sense this is the time I'm needed to put aside my, my objections and my reservations and say, I will serve. If I can be useful, I will help in order to give that extra boost to this body so we can bring the gospel further, glorify God through our efforts, grow the church again to a point where everyone can do what they're gifted and excited to do. That, that message to the Levites and Casiphia must have reminded them this isn't just your obligation. This is your identity. Numbers 3, 11 to 13. The Lord said to Moses, I have taken the Levites from among the Israelites in place of the first male offspring of every Israelite woman. The Levites are mine, for all the firstborn are mine. When I struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, I set apart for myself every firstborn in Israel, whether man or animal. They are to be mine. I am the Lord. Essentially, I saved you. Will you serve me? The Lord was to be their inheritance. This is the situation that, that we're in. Those Levites didn't know their role. They'd forgotten their identity. Have we forgotten ours? In Revelation 1, 5 and 6, we read, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth, freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. We're called to be living sacrifices. We're called to come and acknowledge, yes, every firstborn belongs to you. And because you sent your only begotten son to die in our place, just like the Levites, we are now bought with a price. This is lived out not in the cockles of our hearts and our feelings, but rather through love, which is a verb, as the great DC talk reminds us. The answer then has to be to the question, do you show up? Not to the question, how do you feel? I've been visiting my parents, uh, not as much as I'd like to, but, but quite a bit lately, and I've been watching my mother take care of my father, who is very, very ill. And it occurred to me as I was driving home the other day in the past three or four years just how many people I have seen, a dozen probably, caring for a, a sick loved one, caring for elderly parents, an ailing spouse, a special needs child. And for some people, they say, this is my calling. This, I'm happy to do it. I, I wouldn't want to do anything else. I've got no complaints. There are also perhaps those who drag their feet and don't want to do this, but they know there's no one else to do it, and they step up. But 99.9% .9 of the time, it's a combination of the two. Some days you wake up, and you're nothing but compassion, and you think, 
God, how can you use me today? How can I help make this person comfortable? How can I help them heal? How can I help them know that you love them and, and that I love them? And some days they wake up and say, I got nothing. The tank is empty. I haven't had a moment to myself in six months. If I made it through this, it would be a miracle. But I'll give it a shot. Fine. And you know what? God can use that too. And this is true of all of sanctification. Not just serving God in the home or in the church, in these big ways that require your whole life or in little ways that require an hour or two here or there, but living for Christ every moment. Even in our, in our devotion, in our sanctification, in our battling sin, there are some mornings we wake up and it's like, Jesus, thank you for this day. I can't wait to go out and be your disciple, to be your conduit of love and to proclaim the gospel. I'm going to follow you closer than ever today. I'm just brimming with love for you. I'm brimming with gratitude so much. I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> Some days you wake up and say, you know what sounds better than anything right now is just walk away from all this for a while. Indulge the flesh. Do, do the old stuff. Go back to the old haunts. Eat, drink, and be merry because nothing really seems to matter. It's all bad news on the TV. It's all difficult stuff in my life. But I'm going to follow you anyway. Which one of these has, has done the will of the Father? There is a place in the church, there is a place in, in the, the home, there's a place in all discipleship for the reluctant volunteer who says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I'm going to do it, give me the desire to do it as I obey. They're leaving Babylon essentially, although they're in the Persian Empire now, but they've been sent into a Babylonian exile, and even after years of lingering and loitering there, now they hear the call. And these Levites hear it again, and they go back. In the same way, many Christians have been kind of lingering in spiritual Babylon. Yes, I'm, I'm part of God's people, but I, I've kind of been stuck in a rut for years and years. Maybe it's time to say, all right, I've heard it, I've heard it enough, I've heard it again, and I will respond. I'll be the reluctant volunteer and trust that you will give me the passion after the fact. I will begin reading the Bible together with my family, praying together with my spouse, talking about faith with my friends and neighbors and in my household. And yeah, it might be weird at first, but we're Baptist. And after you've done something two or three times, it's how we've always done it anyway. So just muscle through that. Muscle through the reluctant part. And trust that God will be there with what you need on the other side. This is a message that I think hits everybody differently. What does it mean for you today to be reminded of the good news that you don't have to be jumping up and down excited for God to accept your service in whatever area of life? Yes, it says in Scripture, God loves a cheerful giver, and he does, but there are situations where being cheerful wouldn't even be appropriate and wouldn't make any sense. Are we still giving? Yes, there are situations in which you can use the gifts God gave you and it is hand in glove with the need and it's so amazing when that happens. There's also times when you have to put your hand to the plow and say, okay, I need to do this because someone needs to do this. And I need to do this so that this person over here doesn't get more burned out and bogged down. How will you submit in this year to the call of God, the call that comes again and again, the call of Nathan and Nathan and El Nathan and El Nathan? that we are needed on the harvest fields. Pray, pray that there would be workers given by the Lord of the harvest and pray that if you are one of those workers, you would respond in faith 
and obedience. Heavenly Father, we thank you for kind of a long and tedious passage. And Lord, I pray not too long and tedious a sermon, but Lord, I do pray that as we look at this text and are reminded that you can use us even when we don't hear your voice the first time or the second time, even when we don't feel the excitement, Lord, you are there with us, counting our obedience. Lord, we, we thank you that our discipleship is, is a matter of becoming more like you, not a matter of earning your love, not a matter of earning our salvation. We thank you that it is a gift given to us, grace heaped upon us. Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts that want to say thank you with our whole lives. We pray that you would do that more and more each and every day here at Judson and in our homes and in our private lives and in our, our devotional lives that, Lord, we would do what needs to be done to follow you as close as we can. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.